Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Alone Podcast. Uh, pretty crazy. We're already at number 20. It seems like this just started. And, um, you know, I remember after the first like three or four episodes um, thinking, man, this is just not going to happen. And here we are at 20. So welcome to episode 20. I have a little bit of a cold, so you're going to hear a little bit different of a voice today than you're typically used to. But like always, we're super excited to have our guest today because really this show is about the people we talk to and it's not so much about me. So excited to welcome Amos Rodriguez from season seven to the podcast today. So Amos, thank you for joining us and being willing to sit down. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been fun to to like work through this list of people and and <laughs> get to know people and you know, it's, there's a lot more work in the reaching out than I was expecting, which again is kind of silly. I should have thought about that, but, um, thank you for being willing to respond. (laughs) Yeah. It's probably like herding cats, but you're herding a bunch of weirdos. (laughs) You know, I, I like to, I like to, to put it the way that Larry put it. I think Larry said it's an interesting cast of characters (laughs) and and that seems like, that seems like the nice way to to describe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So yeah. we'll we'll just we'll just leave it at that. No, it's uh it's great. It's so fun and and it's been really cool to me to see how humble and down to earth you all are as a collective group of people and and willing to to talk and share. So I really appreciate that and you know, most to to get started, um the the thing I like to do, it's the easiest and it makes the most sense is just to let you kind of give your own background and, and tell us who you are. And then we're going to see where the four winds take us, my friend. Okay. Well, thanks again, Sam. Um, yeah, my name is Amos uh, Rodriguez. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana right now. It's, uh, I, uh, I'm an immigrant from El Salvador. I moved here when I was uh, about 20 in the fall of the year 2000. I received a scholarship to to continue my higher my higher education in the United States. So I went to Manchester College, spent there uh, my batch did my bachelor's degree over there and then I moved to Indianapolis. About 15, 16, 16 years ago, maybe. And uh, yeah, I've been in India ever since. Yeah. That's awesome. We, you, you left out a lot of, a lot of spaces in there. We're going to, we're going to have a lot of stuff to fill in. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, I guess we'll just start at the beginning. So you said you're, okay. you were an immigrant from El Salvador. You came to the United States um, in 2000. So you've been here for, for quite a while. Um, you know, from reading up on your history bio as well as I, I think, if I recall, um, from hearing you talk when you were on season seven, um, you know, obviously El Salvador has had a a tragic, really, and a sad history for quite a while. It seems like, um, you know, me honestly, I don't know much about that, but it sounds like you are obviously you lived through some of that. Can you kind of share, I guess, what brought you to the states? I mean, you had a scholarship, but then what life was like in El Salvador, and maybe help us as listeners understand maybe some El Salvadoran history and yeah. and what you experienced and, and what you've learned. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a 
It's a long story. I'll try to make it short. Yeah, it's basically El Salvador. I had a great time in El Salvador when I was growing up. I used to play in the woods, play in the trees, go hunting with my slingshot, and go eat fruits out of the trees. It was really beautiful. I live in the suburbs of San Salvador, a pretty big city. Uh, but then I started seeing the process of uh, housing, industrialization, change the environment in which I was living. It was, I started seeing, I started seeing the declination of uh, like our clean creeks where I used to play, chase colorful fish. I started seeing it turn into a black water uh, canal or whatever. It was, uh, it was really sad to see, yeah, all the machinery come and cut the trees where I used to play and see the place transform into big suburbia. And then um, once I started growing up, I started realizing that things were not just that simple in El Salvador. I was being shielded from a lot of the, the stuff that was going on. But as the older I get, the more obvious it was that there was something going on. Well, the something going on was a civil war, basically. How old were you? You said that you were kind of sheltered from that. I'm assuming from your parents or wherever you were living with as a, as a child. Um, how old were you when you kind of started to realize like, hmm, this might not be like a normal situation. Do you recall? Yeah, there is uh, the most clear wake up call I had is when my parents were captured. I was uh, 10 years old. Yeah, they made, we, we were in a church. We grew up in a church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, that had a strong commitment um, to work with poor communities and people in need, people that were displaced by the war. So the church was considered like super, we have a, a strong military regime, junta, government, uh, basically, oligarchs and military people will rule the country. This thing happened throughout Latin America. You know, it's like we had this history of military strongmen or military wealthy people basically ruling ruling these countries for a long time. Well, it's the same case in El Salvador. Um, I was then, and uh, because my church was doing work with poor communities like my father was a pastor of this church and my mother was a deacon of this church and we used to receive a lot of money from non non for profits in the united states and europe and we will use it for social programs like water programs education programs uh health initiatives we had a we had a Orphanage, at some point the orphanage had like 200 children mm. with the height of the war. I remember Bono from U2 came to the orphanage like undercover during that time. Oh, wow. more toys and mm. yeah, we had some pictures. Anyways, the church was doing a lot of this work and a lot of this was considered 
because you are siding with the with the poor communities, the government will see you as a threat. They didn't want people to get communities to organize because that will you will not work with the with the plan of these strong military people ruling the countries, you know. Um, so, so basically, my parents were accused of uh, working against the government, and uh, there was like huge trucks of military people started storming the house one day, and basically they just tied up everybody started beating my we were welcoming my dad he was coming from mexico from a pastor's conference and uh when we got stormed and uh they tied my dad they took my mom away and it was really scary you know i was 10 years old my dad was tied up and he said to me i have coins in my pocket i knew exactly what he meant i took I took the coins out of his pocket and I started running away from the house, man. All these military people were trying to catch me, but I was a really scared 10 year old trying, you know, not understanding what's going on. So I, I left running the house. The guy in charge sent a soldier after me, but you can imagine this soldier after this little kid, there was no way he was going to catch me. Yeah, the coins were to go get in the bus. The bus, I used it to go try to tell the church that my house was getting raided by the military. When I got to the church, the church was already surrounded by this military. By the people. military. Yeah, they were already surrounded there. And I stopped in front of the big group of military people, and this old lady saw me in there and grabbed What's going on? I, she asked me. And I'm like, I need to get through, the, through these military people to the other side, I said. And she grabbed my hand and said, come here, you are my grandson. I don't know who this lady is, but she was like an angel. She just pushed the guys away. She's like, my grandson, I need to go to the home. And she got me through. When I was walking through the church, I saw the other pastor of the church. He was getting interrogated. And we, we didn't say anything, you know. He knew that I was... Yeah, he could tell. Yeah, he could tell. <laughs> so I, let, I, I thanked the lady for getting me through the military people. And I kept running to the offices of the church. I went to get help. I said, the church is getting raided by the military. My house is getting raided. And this lady, I sincerely don't remember who she was, but we went on to her car. We went to check my house. We parked far away and we saw that they were taking my mom. Um, they had bags over her head. They were taking all all my all the books, my dad's Bibles, uh, all the tapes, um, cassette play, you know, cassette players, anything. They were looking for evidence, I guess, quotation marks. And uh, then we went to the Human Rights Commission to do a declaration to say that my parents were being targeted. And by now, this is a tactic that these people are using all over El Salvador. They are kidnapping social workers, uh, religious workers, uh, union workers, student leaders, anybody that had any, any sort of organization 
for the good of the community was targeted. My uncle, he was uh, a leader of the National University and he was taken by the military and he was tortured to death. Found him three days later in the city dump. My mom was taken to the same torture chambers. My father was taken to the same torture chambers. He was basically the military people that had underground torture chambers in their military world nations. And they, you will be lucky if you come alive out of those things. My mom was, uh, it's, uh, yeah, she, she was raped and tortured by these people. She was beat up so much, and, um, but she came out alive. She spent a year in jail. They couldn't prove anything, of course. They didn't find no weapons. They didn't find no, you know, but, but still she was tortured and, and put in jail for that long. So that one time, basically, when my parents were captured and me realizing that we were not safe, it was a big wake-up call for a 10-year-old to escape, to run away from these people that were hurting my family. And um, before that, I was not that tuned into it until yeah. that happened to my family. That's when I knew. Um, I'm sorry, that would really pay. No, 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 no. This is... <laughs> No, it's I, I asked and I'm, I'm grateful that you're willing to share. And, and that's why I wanted to talk about this, because, um, you know, there's a lot of history that that I'll just say it. I mean, people in the United States, we just don't understand. Right. And yeah, and even if we the story, the we just don't understand. Like I remember when I was in junior high um, and, and by the way, <laughs> Amos has already got me in tears here. So you're going to hear some funny noises probably. But, um, you know, I remember when I was uh, in junior high. And I was in gym class, right? And I'm only in my early 30s. I'm not, I'm pretty young, right? I was in gym class. And one of my friends in school, like we were doing whatever, and he had these like horrible scars on his arm. I was like, hey man, where'd you get those scars from? Those are pretty wild, you know? I was like, oh, well, that's that's where I got shot. <laughs> and he's my age, right? He's like 14. I'm like, oh, that's where you got shot? And he's like, yeah. And then he, you know, pulled up his shirt and he's like, and these are where I fell through the barbed wire. <laughs> like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> okay. So that's a story, right? So he grew up in Western Europe. And yeah. as a young man, his family had to flee Western Europe. And, you know, he was just a kid. And he got shot and, like, torn up in barbed wire. And, and you know, and that's it. So I was, like, 13, 14. I was like, oh, okay. There's a lot more going on in the world than, than we recognize yeah. here. And so I'm no I'm, go ahead. No, I'm just saying I'm glad that you're you're willing to share because it's it's important for us to understand um, what is out there and to understand it well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, I realized what you're talking about. I realized it when I went to college because I did receive this scholarship to come here, but because of the context I have grown up because of my process of socialization, I did not want to come to the United States. Remember the United States and then during that time, the United States was pretty much financing this civil war, training these military people. Um, the United States was sending a million and a half dollars a day to this tiny country. During that time in the 80s, a million and a half dollars was, you know, it was a lot of money. All of this military aid was in the form of the old Vietnam era helicopters, all these weapons, you know, 
training for these military people. The training started at uh, the School of the Americas in Panama. Once the United States left Panama, they moved this School of the Americas to Fort Bend in Georgia. And they still train Latin American military there, but because of the Freedom of Information Act, now we have some of these training manuals that the United States was using in, for Latin American training to train the soldiers in uh, counterinsurgency techniques. Well, a lot of these counterinsurgency techniques are basically torture teachings that they did to the soldiers. And raiding, raiding churches and torturing families. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it was a technique, you know, it's like my mom was raped eight times by this military. That was a war technique that they used on people, on communities. There is this famous massacre in El Salvador called the El Mozote massacre, over a thousand people. It, there is a lot of these things. These are just the, the ones that are kind of like up there, quite, that have some that people know about. There is a lot of these, these massacres. In this massacre, the military came and they separated the woman and the children in the church. They separated the men, they killed everybody on this town. And uh, because of all of these reasons, because my mom was tortured by money coming from the United States, because my country is being bombed by bombs that say made in the US, because of all this training that you're doing to these military people, because you're putting these um, people in power, like the United States consider Latin America their backyard, basically, you know, and they put a lot of people in power that will just follow their economic policies. So El Salvador went through a process called dollarization. We don't have our own currency anymore. We had to use the dollar. They just stopped printing the cologne, which was our currency, and then they started handing out dollars for everybody. So now our economy is completely tied up to the United States, you know. So because of all these reasons, I did not want to it was really weird decision for me to come study. I'm like, no, I cannot go to that place. They're just like, it's like, that's the evil empire. That's just like doing all this damage to the world. How can I, but was there a that curiosity? Was there a level of fear there? Like, were you able to, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to word this almost. Were, <laughs> were you in your mind at that point? Were you able to separate I don't even know if it's appropriate, like if it's even possible, but were you able to separate the the money financial from what you thought people would do to you and accept you? Like, were you aware, like, were you able to understand and conceptualize that the government is financing this stuff in my home country, but I'm probably going to be received pretty well as an individual? Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm trying to get that during these college years is when I realized the big difference between my every pretty much the population. Let me put it this way. When I came to college, I came with that anger or rage because of all the things that had happened in my country. But nobody knew about it. Nobody yeah. knew what was happening in El Salvador. Nobody knew that this, they're paying taxes and these taxes are being used to kill nuns, you know, even American nuns. The main priest of El Salvador, Bishop Romero, was killed by a sniper because he was saying, hey, stop, stop killing people, you know. People did not know about the situation in El Salvador. So I realized that my job was one more of showing people with my example who I am as a Salvadorian and to tell my experience 
and it's my only my own you know my own experience it's just what happened to me but if i explain this to people maybe there is a touch of humanity there they will have somebody that they can relate to that this situation had happened and maybe we can start thinking about our financing of these wars all over the world you know yeah so i started going through a process of basically a healing process I started with the help of some professors of the college I started writing about my situation and i started doing symposiums at the college explaining what has happened one of the survivors of this massacre I'm telling you about, Rufina Maya, she was the only survivor of the massacre. She came to speak at the college in my last years there. Um, and it's just realizing that people had no clue that they are financing torture chambers all over the world. It's just, yeah, it, had, it became a job of informing, educating, telling people about my experiences, trying to to explain that not everything, you know, because in the podium, uh, whoever was the president at the time was like, oh, they're communists, they're terrorists, they're subversives. But that's a pretty big blanket in the whole country, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. People were not, we didn't, you know, people didn't know what a community, I mean, people knew, some people were, yeah, they were, communist groups fighting the government but most of us want of food and stability and safety for our yeah, families yeah <laughs> exactly no it was it was pretty weird i mean it's i don't know if i'm having the right word to explain it right now but basically it was a really bad upbringing yeah i got the opportunity to come and study i took the opportunity i didn't want to stay but there is so much work that can be done from from this platform over here to try to turn in um try to talk to people to try to come to an understanding just to have a conversation you know yeah. because sometimes we don't even have those conversations they're really difficult conversations to have yeah for sure mm. well i mean you know it's I've, it's. I think the hardest thing I've I talked earlier about how hard it is to get guests on the show or like to 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 reach out to people. I think the hardest thing is actually like talking to you. And like right now, I've got like five different, ten different directions I want to like take this conversation. Um, you know, one like obviously, I mean, just how amazing your parents are that you were ten before you like knew, right? Um, that alone, like being a parent and thinking of of what your parents had to go through <laughs> and and everything how hard they had to work to to give you 10 years of being a child <laughs> yeah yeah that, that you that you didn't you wouldn't have had otherwise right they let you be a kid for 10 years and that is so beautiful um and to think of all the things that they shouldered to allow that to happen so incredible i agree my i my mom lives with me now and uh i just She's a very strong woman. Yep. Man, if I would have known this, I would have said you need to put your mom on the podcast with you. <laughs> or maybe we'll maybe we'll kick you out and, and sit down with your mom. <laughs> I'll bring it over here. <laughs> because uh man, she sounds like an amazing woman. Um more than an amazing woman. Uh, 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 just incredible. Um so I guess I'll ask you this and 
is there anything left for you in El Salvador? I mean, it's your people, it's your heritage, and, and you've got, it sounds like you do work there, um, but you are still here. Is there is there anything left for you in El Salvador? Or, I mean, not to get too poetic, but did it all kind of burn down in the same ashes that, you know, of your childhood, I guess? No, yeah, it's uh, pretty much who I am. Everything of me is in El Salvador still. Cool. That's, that's what I grew up. That's what I learned to be, um, yeah, the process of socialization was pretty terrible, but it also taught me a lot of things. It taught me to be a humanist. It taught me to be, to have love, empathy, and care for my neighbor. It taught me about not let injustices happen. It taught me about how to try to strive for a better future for the next seven generations, you know. All of those learning experiences I would have not been able to do it if I would have grown up in a very safe environment just playing video games, you know? Yeah. I feel like I am who I am because of my because of El Salvador. I do have my family here now, and I haven't gone to El Salvador for a few years now. But I am, um, yeah, it's, it's it's not uh it's not like i left el salvador and never going back because of those bad bad dark memories out there no it's really beautiful country man i gone after the war i kept going to el salvador a bunch of times i took i've taken a lot of groups to do delegations to do social work so i taken small groups like four seven people and large groups up to 50 people and uh, basically, I place them in. When I used to go, we place them in communities, poor communities, and we'll do social work. Um, I did that with this non-for-profit from Indianapolis. But then I started uh, working more. Now I have a daughter; uh, she's four. So it's. I I love El Salvador. I love the people. I love the food. I love the culture. I love everything that entails. It's just uh, it has gone through a lot of uh, rough times, you know. Yeah, a lot of people that take advantage of you know it's easy to do it through populism. It happens everywhere, but yeah. It sounds like you have a. I mean, it doesn't sound like. I mean, you have an important. You have an important story. You have an important mission, and so I'm glad that that you're still tied into that and you know for me like the the number one thing i knew about el salvador was pupusas <laughs> right we have a, a great place around the corner here that, yeah, makes, that makes pupusas and they're so good Absolutely. for those that aren't listening i don't even know how to describe it it's like it's like the world's best like like a hot pocket. stuffed pancake hot pocket thing yeah i don't even know um, yeah. <laughs> um right and but that was like yeah, the extent really of my like main knowledge of el salvador was pupusas <laughs> No, it's a really tiny country, man. It's only 204,000 square kilometers. It's mostly beach. It's tiny. You can cross in like a couple hours probably by car. Um, it's, uh, yeah, as I said, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, now international surfing competitions happen there a lot. Uh, we're, we have a place in there that... Um, We've been building with my mom. She's got a house down there that we've been building a nice kitchen. 
Um, yeah, I have my family here, but I still very much attached to my roots, to my upbringing, to my language, to my culture. So with, uh, with putting together a place down there, do you see a, a change at some point in the future of going back and like living there? Yeah, I'm not a pessimist. I'm usually like very hopeful person. I also, I'm also a humanist. I believe in us. I believe that maybe we can turn, even though it seems so scary. And so sometimes it seems like we have no hope as humanity because they, at the rate we're destroying the planet, seems like at any moment it could go nuts. Well, especially right uh, now. Huh? <laughs> yeah, especially right now. <laughs> uh, but I believe in us as humanity. I believe in the power of our of our brains to fix it. So yeah, we want to have a safe place to go and hang out. It's up in the mountains. It's really cool. Um, just when I take my daughter, when we go visit, we want to have a safe place to be. And uh, I, I think uh, things things change. You know, yeah. Like it could be unstable right now because A and B reason. Uh, the post-war period, the world has a tendency to destroy communities. So a lot of people got into violence after the war because that's all we knew. All we knew was weapons, violence. Um, so there was a lot of organized crime. And through the now the cartels are, you know, it's like, it's a, a lot of this throughout Latin America and the United States, but over there it shows a lot. So the organized crime has a lot of territory in the country. And, uh, but I feel like it is, you know, I feel safe enough because I'm from there. I can navigate, navigate it well. And I'm planning to go back, enjoy it, you know, go to the beach, go to the mountains. Yeah. Show my daughter how it is. That's awesome. Um, I want to ask one last question and then, and then we can transition if you would like, or we can stay here. The, the year, um, after your parents got taken away and your mother was in prison for a year, what were you doing? I mean, you're 10 years old. Um, what did you do for that year until your mom got out? What was that year yeah, like? So, yeah, we had to go visit my mom. They allow us to visit her like on Wednesday and Sunday, let's say. So we will go pretty much every Wednesday and Sunday to visit my mom. And by then, by then it was uh, you know this this whole capture your family. It was a big wake up call for me. So I started working more with the church. I started going and really just assisting communities that have been devastated by the violence. Basically, I just started going. El Salvador also went through some hurricanes and earthquakes. There was always something that you could be doing to help communities. So that's what I dedicated my my life to it at that time. I was a leader at the church. So I started teaching younger kids how to do outdoor stuff. You know, I like a, almost like a Boy Scout thing, but church related. Uh, so you grew up the, really quick. <laughs> yeah, that helped me grow up really quick. Exactly. So I was a, just a student uh, uh, church leader for the kids and we used to go to waterfalls. I remember one time we took the whole kid group to a waterfall and uh, yeah, 
you, <laughs> you were still doing the, the war. So we found some, some bad guys out there. Nothing bad happened, but it was just, it was really risky then to yeah. go out into the woods, into the forest. Um, yeah, so I just dedicated myself to helping communities to try to learn about uh, myself, Latin America, um, just the whole process of discovering who I am, basically, as a, as a teenager, who I was as, as a Salvadorian, as a native, as a, yeah, yeah, it was just a big discovery process. Um, as you say, just, I had to grow up really quick. Yeah. Well, and then, um, so I guess we'll kind of fast forward a little bit. So you, you know, that brought you here to the States of ultimately, I guess, you know, a decade later. And now you, you talk about how you are a humanist and, and believe in, believe in us, <laughs> right. To, to come together, um, which is hard because sometimes it doesn't seem, I mean, the fact that it's 2022 and we're dealing with the crap we're dealing with, you know, so we've had a yeah. long time to get this stuff right. And we've had a lot of opportunity to see what happens when we get it wrong. And for some reason, we just don't like to learn, I guess. But um, though you mentioned about how, you know, you believe in your roots and your culture, but it seems like you've also done a lot of coming together, I guess, with Native American culture as well. I mean, I, mean, I could be wrong with that, but you just want to speak about Amos today and, and what you're doing and, and, you know, kind of your yeah. thoughts now. Yeah. When I went to college, uh in the fall of 2000 to Northern Indiana, I met uh, a couple of people there that invited me to a ceremony. The ceremony was uh, Sundance. It was uh, basically was uh, one of it is one of the most important rituals of the Oglala Lakota Sioux. It's like a big vision quest. So I went to check it out. I went to see it. And this experience truly changed my life. I saw myself as a native of this continent because of that ceremony. They accepted me as part of their brotherhood or whatever. Their, uh, they accepted me as part of their uh, family. And I learned a lot from them. Basically, um, similar worldview like I had, but I had more specifics, you know, to go with. I kept attending the Sundance ceremony as a supporter, and then I started dancing, basically being a Sundancer. So I, I have been going, um, I think since 2012, Last two years has been canceled because of COVID. But uh, my friend Tom Cook is an elder of the Mohawk community. He's married to a Lakota elder. So basically, this this family, these two families, the Afero Bear and American Horse families, in the Black Hills, they put together a Sundance. And basically it's four days of fasting. We try not to do any water, any food. And we are doing a ceremony for four days. And it's one of the rituals the natives have been doing in this continent for millennia. Similar to uh, 
the sundances that my ancestors, the Maya, the Lenca, the Pipil, did in El Salvador back in the day. The sweat lodges that we practice with the Lakota Indians, it was very similar worldview than the sweat lodges that the Maya people did in El Salvador back in the day. It's like, uh, like the old religion, you know, we, uh, it's not, it's basically uh, calling to the four directions and saying we're here, we're trying to, to talk, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, so you did uh, this, trips to South Dakota helped me a bunch in my uh, worldview. So I know that it's, I mean, anything of a, of a spiritual nature that, that has the ability to, to really change the, the fiber, right. Of who we are and and how we operate. I know those are very personal experiences. So I, obviously I I want to respect that. And if the answer is no, that's great. Um, Can you share anything of, of what it was like for you I guess physically and emotionally when you first experienced that ceremony um, from the fasting and, and the ceremonial portion and, and how that impacted you. Can you share any of that experience at all or is it too personal? Um, no, yeah, I can share it. We're, you know, with, uh, with these ceremonies, a lot of native peoples are pretty jealous. They're keepers of these ceremonies. And sometimes some people are not as willing to share because of all the history yeah. of coloniz- colonization, you know, forever. It's, uh, it was things that were forbidden. It was illegal to do these ceremonies until Jimmy Carter passed the, F- the Freedom of Religion Act in 1979. So then these ceremonies like the Sweat Lodge, the Sundance, etc., will come from underground. But this these ceremonies were kept alive by people that were targeted for doing these things, you know? So without understanding, we can see why some people are pretty jealous of their ceremonies and they don't want it to be too much out there. Yeah, 100%. But with these families that I do ceremony with, they had their own specific vision about their Sundance and they decided that they were gonna invite people that were no, just Lakota, people like me. So um, it was, a, I don't know, it was a clear, clear, clear calling to go on Sundance. I didn't know why. It was just this, this urgent, urgent call to be there with my fellow native brothers and sisters. So I talked to Tom Cook, the Sundance leader, and I'm like, I have this, this vision of me being out there with you guys. I don't know why I had this strong calling of being there. I don't know why, what is it? He's like, you are one of us. And he gave me a series of steps that I need to follow the following year in order to be able to dance. Some, you know, some of these things are really hard to do. Some of them you can do them every day. It's just, I started preparing anyways. He was, the only thing I was missing by the time the ceremony came was the, the long bone of the wing of an eagle, the whistle. It's an eagle whistle, and the Sundance leader, Tom Cook, had one for me. 
and I was able to Sundance. I made a commitment for four years. That's how it usually goes. When I came back from Sundance, oh, before I go, I was going to Sundance. I remember my brother was really sick. He was losing his potassium. He was passing out. They didn't know what to do at the hospital. My mom called me really worried. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go to the ceremony. We're you know, it's supposed to be a big prayer. I'm going to pray for my brother. And my mom is like, okay, I'm going to pray for him over. While you're doing that, I'm going to pray over him. Over here in El Salvador. And um, it was really touching. I had a lot of amazing experiences out there. Uh, it's like a big vision quest. There is a lot. It's really hard to even put in words. It's a lot of sacrifices that natives do out there. Some of them are like flesh offerings. You attach yourself to the tree and you pull yourself out to rip your skin off. And the skin that comes out, you cut it and that's the flesh offering you do to the, to the tree of life. Um, this ceremony was so amazing for me. It was an incredible uh, transformative thing. And when I got done with the ceremony, I called home and my brother was just better now. And some of those things that we, you know, we call miracles and things that had happened ever since I started going in this path of roots or connection to myself, connection to my ancestry, connection to the ancestry of the people that live in the place where I am stepping. So the people, the mm -hmm. Miami Indians of Indiana or the Lakota Indians in South Dakota, just to try to do, to learn from their ceremonies and to try to understand those pathways of connection have allowed me to see a little deeper into, into what we, you know, I don't know how to call it magic, you know, it's like, there's still a little bit of magic left in the world. I feel like we yeah. still can tap into it. We can still do amazing things as humans if we are, if we can tap into it. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's hard to, exp to even explain it's, it. It's, word. <laughs> I'm just thinking, right? Like it, it's, I mean, not to, not to get into alone, but it's kind of like the alone experience. Right. And we talk about this all the time with guests and, you know, like it's hard to talk, I guess, about a lot of the experiences that you have on the show because you know that people aren't going to understand. <laughs> and, yeah. Like and, for example, and, the, yeah, no, I, I, go ahead. Sorry. I was about yeah, to say it in like, Spanish. Adelante, por favor. <laughs> no, for example, in the uh, in the TV show, in the Alon show, for example, I before I left, I was talking to my buddy Matt. I'm like, man, these people are. I was saw season six, and like these people are finding barrels, big drums out there, steel drums, and like they're using it for. Uh, I don't know, you know, it's like, I will use it for a rocket stove. I will put my fire there so my shelter will not burn down and I'll be safe and I will, well, I'm like, but I don't need a big drum. I want a small one. I want just a smaller drum. And I like, but then I was like, how am I going to put a hole on it? I'm not going to mess up my ax trying to open a big hole in this steel drum. I want it with the hole for the wood. Oh, but I need a chimney. How can I, I was just thinking all of this before leaving. The third day I'm walking out there in Grace Lake Lake. I go for a walk. I reach my geofence. They ping me. They're like, they call, they put a text on the yellow bridge. They go back uh, northeast or southwest, wherever you came from. I turn around. I saw a patch of blueberries. I go to the patch of blueberries. And there is the steel drum right there in the middle of the patch. The size that I needed. 
with the holes already on it. So somebody already had used it for a stove mm -hmm. out there. And I'm just like, how did, is this for real? Am I in the Truman Show where they <laughs> production already heard my dream? Yeah. And they're putting it out here for me. How do this happen? I couldn't understand why I had thought about this barrel with these specific holes, with this specific size. And then I had it right there. And all I can say is that it's just those little moments of magic that happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I I, I love that. Thank you for for sharing that because it is it is true. It's like it's it's just it's hard for people to understand these intensely personal experiences, right? And oh. it's hard because in a lot of ways they're super important to share. Like your experience in El Salvador is so important to share, but it's also so difficult to share because, oh. like, I can understand, but I will never understand. And you know that, right? And so it's it's so difficult. So I appreciate that. I'm I'm curious. Yeah. Your your elder, um, Tom Cook, the elder of your you know your community, with him and his family and his wife's approach to being open and to inviting others into this beautiful, um, I don't know how to like beautiful belief system, this beautiful way of living, I guess, this beautiful lifestyle, um. Is there pushback that you are aware of that he receives from other communities that are saying, Hey man, this is really personal stuff. And this is, this is ours. Like you need to be careful what you're doing. Is there that kind of tension that exists that you're aware of? It does. Absolutely. Yeah. There's some groups that are really jealous of their ceremonies and they will not even allow anybody to step into their Sundance and they will not agree with, uh, with these two Tioshpayas. So afraid of bear and American horse sharing their ceremony with other people. But these are specific visions from the elders that started this Sundance. And their vision is to share these ways. So yeah, they, you know, like sometimes there have been letters signed by other communities on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation saying, no, we we're gonna keep a hold of our ceremonies and not try to share it right now with anybody because of the current times. And I feel like this is in waves. Sometimes this, uh, our relationship with the native communities sometimes are, you know, sometimes it's the, uh, the Native American we perceive it as uh, in tune with nature and uh, and sometimes it's the savage Indian, the, you know, the times of, uh, for example, when, when Wood, the Wounded Knee was happening, you know, there was a conflict with the Native Americans there. It's more like, oh, it's like, these Indians are just savages. They're just uh, rebels. So I feel like there are waves of this uh, relationship with Native Americans. But um, it's been helpful, I think, to be able to share our worldview. Yeah. Because there is some, then we can start actually, like I said, a conversation, some sort of baseline for understanding each other. Then we can because come together. Yeah, yeah, sometimes there is hard, it's hard to talk, hard to speak, because some people are really, really religious and they're like, oh, no, that stuff is from the devil, we cannot, we cannot even come to any sort of agreement or conversation or baseline to start speaking. 
and some people reach, you know, like you were asking about your experiences with these ceremonies and in the alone, they're deeply challenging experiences. Some people, even at the Sundance, at the ceremonies I go to, some people go through, uh, do it with plant medicine, for example, with peyote, with um, psilocybin mushrooms. Um, and they people reach out levels of connection to self, to community, to ancestry, using these plant medicines. And you can have times where you understand what you're doing. You go through this inner tracking process, the process of self-check. You go through your brain and shuffle the files and see what's going on. Where have you been? Who are you? Where are you going? What are you doing right now? Are you doing what you need to do? Any, any problems in your life? You start checking in and sometimes, you know, it's like when people do this plant medicines, it's uh, sometimes people go through this ego death. Extremely powerful, oh, extremely powerful. powerful. Yeah, powerful. You, I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, <laughs> did you listen to my last episode with Ray? <laughs> I haven't. Okay, well, uh, homework for you. So listen to the episode with Ray. Um, Ray shares an awesome story of, of I don't even know how to describe it. I don't want to describe it because it's not fair to him, right? Um, but I, I, would, I would put it as he went on a journey where he was able to come to love the demons inside of himself. Yeah. And he, he had to face every single one of the demons inside of himself. And then he got to embrace them and give them a hug. And wow. I was like, Pow! right. Yeah. <laughs> and then oh, it's, yeah. I'm jealous. I'm like, ah, man, I wish I could do that. Right. I wish I could have that experience of, of truly coming to love myself. And then I would assume I need to talk to Ray, but then being able to let go of those things as well. Right. Like loving them, embracing yeah. them, accepting them for being part of you, but then being able to say goodbye. Yeah. And that's why sometimes it's a problem when people, because we haven't learned from native communities, how they do sometimes these rituals with a lot of, not to say the word again, but with a lot of ritual on it. Yeah. Uh, fasting with a lot of intention with the elders in charge of it because sometimes people just use them like oh i'm just gonna eat seven grams of mushrooms and see where it goes and they're like oh i'm confronting my biggest fears and 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 challenges of my life and sometimes we don't want to give in we don't want to be vulnerable yeah. we want to stay in control of who we think we want to be you know and sometimes we don't have those conversations with us with those skeletons on the closet. So yeah. whatever is inside us that, you know, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, uh, it's, I think uh, that you can achieve a lot of these internal check-ins with different practices, not just with plant medicine. You can do it by meditating. You can do it fasting. You can do it by going on a lawn and staying hungry for days on end you know we'll just <laughs> say that the, the plant medicines the plant medicines are to internal spiritual journey what the microwave is to cooking dinner <laughs> exactly <laughs> the, <laughs> no, it's, 
You can either starve for 30 days or you can, you know, (laughs) get it done in about four hours. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's, I think we've been starting to, to understand some of this, how we can create those pathways of connection and how these plant medicines are help are helping a lot of people, man, people with depression, people with PTSD. I was going to mention that. It's super cool. It's funny. I don't know what the heck is going on almost. But I think this is like the fourth episode that we've gotten into this. <laughs> it's just like it just has like naturally come up on like four episodes now. And this is like the fourth episode where we've where the word ego death has come up. Um, and it's not me. I'm not the one bringing it up, right? So maybe when Larry said an interesting cast of characters, maybe he said meant something else, but um was it a mention it's cool. So I live in Utah. Utah is like a highly conservative state, right? So just to kind of give some political, like, so this is an interesting juxtaposition. So in the last like week, there's two headlines from our legislative session that kind of cracked me up. So one headline that came out this week was your favorite hard seltzers, like your white claws and, you know, those types of like alcoholic seltzers, right? Um, like many of those are going to be like not banned in Utah, but like you can't just go buy them at the grocery store. You have to go to like an actual designated state run, like state cartel liquor store basically to buy hard seltzer. Right. (laughs) So like very, very conservative when it comes to that type of stuff. But then like the next headline is Utah is making a law to allow, allow the study of, um, I'll just, you know, the psychedelic in medicines basically for mental health use and so it's starting to like even in a state where you can't like get hard seltzer at the grocery store anymore uh, we're starting to study these natural substances and and what they really can do for people um which is fascinating but yeah i just have to laugh this is like the fourth time it's come up people are going to start questioning me (laughs) (laughs) no it's bound to happen you know this uh they haven't been able to they cannot put a patent on on peyote or mushrooms so they cannot make money on it so they haven't been able they they didn't want these medicines to be available for people because they won't make money on it you know so i'm glad that now people are actually studying these medicines and i think with the proper guidance and if we learn from our ancestors how the people do it or native communities do i think there is a lot of advantages for sure healing and connection that can happen through that yep you know it's funny you mentioned um we talked about this a little bit and i i definitely don't want to talk out of turn here because it's not my place at all um you talked about how your community with with tom and his family like is, is open and is sharing what you know and what you've learned and is wanting people to understand it and then you talked about the you know the others that are saying no we don't want to share this right and i understand completely why it's interesting. I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast or not before, but I had the opportunity to spend some time on a reservation in Southern Arizona called the Tohono O'odham peoples. And they're a, a, a native people that kind of inhabit Southern Arizona, Northern Mexico, um, which lots of sad stuff there. They've now got like a border fence that they can't cross without permission. And it's, it's a disaster. Um, but I remember I went on the reservation and we went wow. to a community center and there was um, a, you know, like a hundred kids playing basketball, right? And we walked into the community center and like within five minutes, 
there was like five or six kids that were left playing basketball and they came over and they were like shooting hoops with us. Right. And, and at that moment I realized like, you know, (laughs) there's a lot more to this story than I understand. There's a lot more pain and a lot more unaddressed stuff (laughs) than I can even possibly begin to understand. And, and if we frame, I think if we frame our, I don't want to say our judgments, but that's what we do is we judge, right? If we frame our judgments from the perspective of, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of generational hurt, um, here that we don't understand, yeah. then Absolutely. hopefully we can come to that com- and have those conversations and start to learn from each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. There is a, for example, Pine Ridge Reservation is in the poorest county in the United States. It has super high levels of alcoholism, incarceration, diabetes. It's because of years and years of colonization and and lack of health and good food. And of course, these people are going to be a bit jealous of their ceremonies and not willing to share because of so much damage and trauma that has been caused. Yeah. Um, But I think there is a necessity. There is a a need to start those type of conversations, to start a real healing process. Otherwise, it will be really difficult to move forward. Yeah. I agree. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's easy to, um, how do you put it? When you can't get the story directly from somebody, it's easy to make your own story. Right. And, yeah, exactly. and, uh, when we make our own stories based on just what we think we see, unfortunately those stories don't always come out the right way. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's important, like you're doing with El Salvador and with, you know, and, and Tom cook with his, with his families. Um, it's important to tell your story. So no one else tells it for you. Uh, that way you can yeah, get the right exactly. story out there. Yeah, that's why I really started uh, working with more with my community. And after college, started uh, trying to tell a little more of who I am as an individual, just so people can have, uh, you know, a way to relate to me. Somebody can can have a conversation with me, and we can talk about it. Um, yeah, because I'm not like against the United States. So I'm not, you know, it's not like that. It's just I'm against us hurting people. I'm against us hurting the planet. I'm against the soon to be trillionaires destroying the future of the next seven generations, you know. It's, uh, but sometimes we don't see each other because we don't have those conversations. You mentioned earlier that you have you have hope and you have hope for humanity that that we will and that i guess we're probably generally i guess doing the right thing but that we'll do more of the right thing and that we'll finally get to the the place where we need to be and that's kind of hard i think to have right now because especially right now there's so much going on in the world and in other parts of the world so how do you have that hope and and how do you see that hope like what actions need to happen well just 
Yeah, I think because I have seen a lot of catastrophes, I've seen a lot of the bad that humans can be. I've seen a lot of destruction. I feel like I have to work towards a better future, especially now that I have my daughter. She's four years old. In uh, this Native American worldview that we were talking about, we talked about our decision-making processes. Every time we make a decision, we should think about how this will be will affect the next seven generations. So, so because of this atrocities that I have experienced. I don't want that to happen to anybody. I don't want that to happen to my daughter. I don't want people, towns to get bombed. I don't want bullets to be flying because it will be a scary thing whenever, if, every, if, if, if everything turns into chaos, it will be, it'll be, yeah, it'll be super, super difficult for a lot of people that are not ready. Yeah. So I am basically, I'm a, I, I'm a positivist or a humanist. I believe that we can change. I believe that if we, the next generation can turn around the, all the damage that we have caused, we can probably there can heal herself. We can there can have an opportunity to clean up the rivers of the plastic of the oceans. Right now we're just basically eating microplastics and all the fish because all the plastic of the world ends up in the oceans. Um, as you said, there is uh, the drums of war are playing again. So it's really difficult to stay positive and to try to see a better future, but it's really, really important that we don't lose hope uh, in order for it to, just to have a glimpse of it, just to even just to move us forward. I just use it basically, it's an alternative for me to think about it. It's a different way of thinking. It's like, oh yeah, it's a, uh, World War III is about to begin. I better, you know, keep collecting, keep cleaning my guns and keep collecting food. And then, yeah, I'm doing all of that. But at the same time, I'm trying to work so World War III doesn't happen. I'm trying to establish connections, relationships with my community. Uh, and I think that's what we need for us to get over it. We need to start having those difficult conversations. We need to start creating pathways of connections to our neighbors. Um, there are powers that want to divide us. We want, we need to fight against those powers with all our might, you know. Um, I know this conversation happened because I am on a TV show, but I don't, you know, when they called me for a loan, I was like, there is no way. I don't want to be on a TV show. I don't agree with the consumerism. I don't want the whole drama of the TV, blah, blah, blah. They're like, no, this one is different. Go check it out and then change your mind, call us back. And 
I'm grateful that I did that because it's basically a way for me to do a survival quest to test myself, but also at the same time gives me an opportunity to show my journey, my connection to my food, my connection to myself, to the world. And it's not, yeah, it's just what I think is the, some of the steps that we need to take just to strengthen uh, those pathways of connection. And we're starting with connection to ourselves, basically. If we can keep track of, of how we are, uh, we will know if we're getting a little off. You know, it's like, oh, I'm getting angry because I'm in, in traffic and it's a peak hour. And what is this car doing? And is your heart rate start increasing? Your stress hormones start coming out. We have to remember to breathe, to drink water, to stretch, neck rolls, whatever we need to do of self-care so we can change it. And, uh, and that's just what I try to do. I, every time I feel like uh, because of all the trauma that we've been talking about, trauma has a way of sticking in your body. It shows up as anger, it can show up as alcoholism, it can show up as pain in the back, it can show up as in many different forms, you know? It can make you sick. So basically, I'm just trying to, to keep track of how I am reacting to my environment. And basically, you can do, you know, tactical breathing, like when I was on a lawn or when I'm in a stressful situation or a survival situation, I just do tactical breathing. It's basically inhale all the way, count to six or whatever, then keep it up there and then exhale all the way. And this helps you get back on baseline and you can then make better, better decisions. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's so many different ways, but the way I'm doing it is basically just strengthening my pathways of connection to myself, to my community, to the plants around me, to the land around me. And that keeps me grounded. That gives me a lot of grounding and uh, it gives me a better vision. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it really. No, it's it's interesting. I As you're talking, um, I'm thinking back again <laughs> to your, your elder, to Tom Cook. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm thinking of, you know, one, I'm, I'm grateful that you made the choice to go on the Alone Show. Um, you know, not because I don't even know how to put this, not because the alone show like would have, couldn't have happened without Amos Rodriguez, but because you did alone, now we get to know you and now you get to share your story and not only do you get to share your story, but now you get to be heard and you get to help the world go in the direction that I think we'd all agree it kind of needs to go in because you did that and it's the same with with your friend tom right yeah he, and tom, he had yeah, to right. open up and share these very personal important parts of his life and of his culture mm-hmm. in order to maybe not preserve them but in order to 
to extend them and in order to make the world a better place. And so, he, yeah. He, so it's cool to see that kind of that correlation between you and, and Tom. Yeah. Yeah. And Tom, you know, when I went to Alon, I almost didn't make it to Alon. They called me the last week of casting and I, they asked me to send some videos. I sent some videos. They were going to call me that Friday. And uh, he was like, we're going to call you by five. And we let you know if you come to the show. Well, the, the call never came. I had to go get my family at the, I think at the zoo at the airport. I don't remember where I was going. But I was really stressed out about this, this call that never came. And then I, I had an accident, a car accident. Somebody rear-ended me. And I'm like, oh, my God, I wasn't even looking. It's like, and then the accident, the situation got stressful. People were starting to open my car doors, and I got really, really worked up. But I had, I had to leave. The, I, I felt like a little bit in, didn't want to hurt anybody, so I left the place. And I called the police. Hey, these people were opening my car. We just had an accident. The police came. We did the whole thing. Basically, uh, I realized, man, I don't think I can be on alone. I got all worked up. I didn't do my tactical breathing. Because it's accident. I said, they're going to call me and they're going to say no. And guess what? They called me and they said no. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. You know, I just didn't, didn't think that this was it. I already had plans to go to the Sundance and taking my family, blah, blah, blah. They're like, okay. So I went to South Dakota to go to the Sundance. I usually go to the Badlands for a few days to unplug before I go to the Sundance. And uh, when I go out to the Sundance, uh, to the Badlands, I see, uh, I started thinking about all this, what had happened the previous weeks. And I'm like, well, you know, don't get too hung up on it. Don't, you know, it's like, it's, if it's not for you, it's not for you. You just, just gotta let it go. You just gotta, you know, you're doing your thing. You're in the right path. You're, you're doing what you need to do. And when I had the moment of letting go, this ego just flies in front of me, like five feet away from me, in front of me. And this, in the Badlands, it was just so majestic. And I'm like, oh my God, just like the ego, let it go. And like, it was like one of those moments where like, oh, like the Truman Show type of thing. Yeah. Like, release the owls no. <laughs> um, so i was like really feeling it man and then this deer came out of the blue and he had one of the broken antlers he had a broken one of his antlers was broken i'm like oh that deer is damaged he had a an injury i'm gonna take a picture of it i took my phone out and as soon as i took it out it's a missed call from new york and i'm like how is a missed call from new york in the badlands i never have seen that I never, ever, ever have signal because I'm way out there. And I was able to receive this call from New York again, and it was the alone production team. It's like, I know we told you no, but actually my boss wants to know if you want to come to New York. We want you to compete in boot camp and see if you can be on the show. And I'm like, can you fly to New York right now? And I'm like, no, I'm in the Badlands. Uh, I need to fly home. And then to New York, I went, I just stopped for one night in Indianapolis to, my girlfriend helped me prepare the bag that I needed to take to New York. And I went to New York for the competition. 
But I went to talk to Tom Cook, my Sundance leader, about this phone call that I had because I was supposed to come to the Sundance. And I'm like, Tom, they just called me. They want me to go to New York uh, to do this, this thing. It's like, and I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, remember you told me you wanted to change careers and do survival and primitive skills? Well, this is the answer to your prayers. So don't, you know, don't, <laughs> you gotta go. And uh, so I went to New York and the rest story there, you know, so I got selected for the show and I was able to, to have my journey. And, uh, and it was just part of my story as, as Amos Rodriguez, as a human. And, well, and, yeah. and how incredible that, I mean, to me, maybe I'm sure that you see significance in it, or I guess I shouldn't say that. I would, I, I wonder if you see significance in this as well, but how incredible that, um, that that call came at the beginning of, you know, you were just getting ready to start this annual transform transformative experience with the Sundance. You just had these, um, connected encounters with nature. Mm -hmm. And then you get that call that in a place where it sounds like you shouldn't have been able to get a phone call. Yeah, not at all. (laughs) That kind of transforms your, your life and, and allows you to share your story on a, on a broader platform. That's yeah. After I had those big inner tracking moments of letting go, you know, after me realizing, no, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're in the right path. Don't be hang up on this and that. Um, yeah, because I was really going deep into myself, you know, out there by yourself. That's one of the things that I enjoy about being out there in nature by myself or, or when I'm in faraway places is that you go really deep into your own thoughts and, and you can have big moments of growth through that. That's a cool story. Like that's, I mean, I hate to use the word cool because cool <laughs> kind of is like a, it's like trivial almost, but that's a cool story. Like there's nothing else to to say, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, so what are you doing today? I know we're, we want to get you back to your day here and, and get on, but what are you doing today almost? And, and where can people find you and, and can people interact with you and, and, you know, what are you doing? What are you up to? Um, well, I've been working a bunch in my, uh, basically I, uh, yeah, once you do this alone thing, you are in like basically a list of uh, like potential TV works can happen. So I'm right now talking to a few people to see if something comes out of it. Um, I've been uh, preparing uh, classes. A lot of people have asked me to to teach the stuff that I learned through my journey in life like the survival, the primitive skills, the inner tracking. Uh, so I've been preparing uh, a class I want to do in January and February of next year. Uh, I'm preparing a class that I'm going to do in Indiana, in the Midwest. Um, I've been uh, just working at the farm. Uh, so yeah, I have a, I have a website, amosrodriguez.com just first name, last name. And I will try to keep people updated of my, uh, of what I'm doing through there. I'm also on social media now on Instagram. Um, 
yeah, I've been working with this non-for-profit. We, uh, we're trying to do nature connection uh, with the community of Indiana and the Midwest. So we have a place called White Pine Wilderness Academy. I've been working for a few years in there and we're, it's a non-for-profit that we are building to, um, to expedite this connection that we're talking about, to try to help people connect to nature. I'll get links to to all of this um, so people can find your website and your Instagram. Um, if you want to give me the information for that not-for-profit, if there's like a website or something that people yeah, can... It's, uh, yeah, whitepinewilderness.com. Cool. We will we'll get that as well, and so people can check that out and see see what that's all about. Um, and I've got I have I have one last question for you, and then we'll you know if you have anything else you want to talk about or anything we haven't discussed or anything you want to get into. Um, I feel like I have to ask you this question about mm. the experience. I, I I don't want to say the experience because I'm sure there was many, but the experience with the wolves on alone. Um, cause that was pretty wild. Right. Um, yeah. and I'm sure that there was much more to that probably, uh, maybe personally and, and interpersonally than what we were able to see and, and hear. So do you want to yeah. talk about that experience? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's more to that than, than we know. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, and that's the, one of the main things, yeah, that people ask about the show. It's like, how can you how you know one of the things that people want to learn in my classes how can you stay so cool when you're surrounded by a pack of wolves how can you stay composed and that's all part of the inner tracking process you know that you do your tactical breathing um all of the things that we've been talking about but basically these these wolves they were getting closer and closer to me i kept seeing tracks on the beach first just on the sand I'm like, oh, there is a wolf track. That's cool, you know. Then, and then a week later, I said, oh, actually, there are three of them. Look at these three wolves. And then a week later, it was like, well, they got closer this time. They're only sixty feet away from my shelter. What's going on? So I could tell that they were getting closer and closer. They were really curious, but I hadn't actually seen them until that one day that. I, I got wired up, I turned the cameras, I got everything and night and basically the whole family is right there on my shelter. I think they were, I had a lot of smoke fish inside the shelter at the time. So they were actually coming for the food. But, uh, you know, I didn't feel, I felt like we had a rapport. I felt like we did have a conversation with the walls. I felt like we were able to see each other because the way I was talking to them, I was being really sincere. It's like, hey guys, this is my food. This, if you want it, this is not gonna go down easy. And I did not feel like they were going to be attacking me. I didn't feel them super aggressive. They were flinching. If I would move the camera too fast, or would move my arrow to another one, they would flinch. And I had two tags to kill the wolves. They gave me, because we had the same permissions that the Native Americans of the area do. So they gave me two tags for it. But production asked me to not kill the wolves. Please do not do that. We don't want it on TV. Yeah, that would have been a, a PR disaster, I'm sure. 
Yeah, yeah. They're like, we we don't want that. So these are your two tags, but only use them if you really need to kill them. And uh, and I felt like I didn't have to, they didn't feel too aggressive. They were really, really close. The alpha male was huge, huge wolf. And I never seen anything like it. Uh, there was the white one that was a little far away. I feel like that one was the alpha female. It was really cool experience. It was just unbelievable. And uh, basically they just came, they surrounded my shelter for a while. They came really close, about three yards. Uh, and they moved on. Basically, they they realized that it was, and it was crazy to think about it because they can take prey, you know, they can take moose that weigh a thousand pounds. And, uh, and I just, I'm really lucky to have that experience, to have been able to come to an understanding with that pack of wolves. And yeah, just super amazing sight. That's, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Cause that was like, I don't know. I, and I, it's funny. I try not to ask and talk about the things that like everyone is going to talk about. I try to, <laughs> I try Like I've tried really hard for 20 episodes now to, to stay away from that type of thing. But I had to ask that question because it was such a, a, a neat and, and fascinating experience that you had there. So thank you for sharing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And in the, if you look at it in, uh, like in my childhood, you know, I have confronted wolves before. The soldiers that came to capture my parents, they were like the wolves. And I had to, I had to think about it. I had to breathe. I had to take control of the stressful situation and be able to deal with, do what I needed to do in order to be safe and to keep my family safe. So it's, it's some of those situations in life that we need to, you know, it, it could be different for a lot of people. In my situation is uh, military taking my family, wolves coming and taking my shelter, you know, but it's the same when you go through difficult life changes out there. Um, one of the things I say during the show is that we are all just basically surviving. The current system, the economic system in which we live has made everything really difficult for a lot of people. A lot of mothers don't have food for their child. A lot of children are dying of malnutrition and starvation. Billionaires are becoming trillionaires. There is a lot of disparity, you know? There is a lot of things that are making life really, really difficult for millions and millions of people. And some of those situations are just as scary as the pack of wolves coming to try to take you or your food. But that's when we need to show the best of ourselves and try to control our stress, our anger, and try to stay tuned with our body, our breathing, um, just so we can try to, you know, put a healthy, healthy front uh, against those situations. Um, just one more of the things that I want to point out is that some of the biggest connections that I've been working in my life is the connection to my food, because I believe that's one of the big things where, where they're making people unhealthy because of the food choices, our addiction to sugar, um, 
to caffeine, to alcohol, um, to processed foods is uh, having a big impact and a really bad impact on our health and the health of the planet. I feel like the mass production of food to satisfy the need of the population has stressed the web of life. So I feel like by strengthening our connection to your neighbors, to your local growers and farmers, by growing your own little garden, by having an understanding of the life and death process of the animals that we hunt, we can actually heal the planet. There is hope for this planet if we actually come to an understanding as humans that we have to have empathy for our brothers and sisters, even if they don't look like us. So that's where my hope comes from, just from the, the understanding that we actually can do it if we come to that the understanding. Thank you. That is, um, that's perfect. And I think that's a, a perfect statement to, to end on. Um, just, it's perfect. It made me think, you know, when you talk about this connection and, and then I guess we'll, then we'll let you to end, but you talk about the connection to food and, and, you know, an interesting exercise, I think for people just to, to, to start, if you don't already have that understanding of your food system and understanding of the impact of, of just staying alive on, on the environment and on the world. Um, think about how much chicken you consume in a year as a family. Oh my God. And then think of what you would have to do to grow or to, to raise that much chicken for your own family. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, when you, that, yeah. When you do like an, an exercise, just like that, just on one thing, just on chicken and say, well, <laughs> gosh, my family probably eats a hundred chickens a year at least. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then extrapolate that across like your entire neighborhood. Um, and like, I think just that simple yeah. exercise and like actually do the math of how much chicken you consume and how many chickens you would have to raise. Um, not that it's changing a ton of my behaviors yet, <laughs> but like it really makes you start to think. So that's a good yeah. exercise of something simple just to start to understand what that actually looks like to the world. Um, so Amos, Absolutely. anything else that you want to share with us before we wrap up today? I don't, I don't want to end with me giving some monologue about chicken. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to talk to people about my my journey um as i said i have uh i have some classes that i'm planning this year you can check in at uh, my website amostrodriguez.com and uh, i'll be updating it with future classes and i also do um, private consulting my specialty is uh hunting with primitive weapons making your own arrows making your own bows and using them to to try to ethically harvest your own protein. So I do train people on that too. And, uh, and a lot of people come ask me for trainings about the philosophy that I use to stay true to myself when I'm in a stressful situation or in a survival situation. So the philosophy or the psychology of survival. So uh, I will have some classes of that. And I've been doing a lot of classes with 
uh, at White Pine. So yeah, stay tuned and and uh, yeah, let's get together and heal the planet, man. I love it. Well, Amos, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom and your stories and and really personal aspects of your life. I'm sure that everyone, I'll speak for everyone when we say we really appreciate it and are grateful to have gotten to know you. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate you, man.